Let us pray. O Lord, you have given us your word for a light to shine upon our path. Grant us so to meditate on that word and to follow its teaching that we may find in it the light that shines more and more until that perfect day. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And again, thank you for coming tonight for uh, the series through the letter of Rome to the Romans. Tonight's reading is from the second chapter, verses 1 to 16. Listen to the word of God. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who would judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will tender to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, two weeks ago, if you remember, uh, the message addressed Paul's warning about God's judgment on primarily the Gentiles. They know God through revelation and moral law, but so many of them have turned away from that knowledge and they chose to practice idolatry and immorality. They suppressed the truth that they knew. And so as a result, God gave them up to sinful passions and they suffered the consequence of his permissive wrath. And that means being left to one's own desires without God in your life. Now that may seem like freedom to some people, but in reality, it is slavery to sin and it is a terrible punishment. And the consequences to people are devastating certainly over the long term. Now, Paul here is now making it clear that it is not only Gentiles who need fear the wrath of God, but also the Jews. 
and he sets out the reasons why. He explains that their predicament is also quite dire. Now, when I was reading up for this sermon, I was really taken by some of the interpretations of Karl Barth, his classic commentary on Romans, almost 100 years old, the first edition. Now, I've referred in small part to his commentary before tonight, but on this passage, I feel that what he says is so relevant for us today that I'm going to let him speak for more of the exposition. Now, let me say a word about his perspective before I share some of this. His theology really emphasized the otherness of God and the total lostness of humanity without God. It's quite possible that Bart overdid the emphasis on the otherness of God. But this emphasis is a useful corrective, I'd say both in his time and now. There has been a tendency, I would say, in both mainline and evangelical churches to domesticate God. God, certainly in the person of Jesus Christ, is seen as non-threatening and rather tame. He will give us what we need and desire. He will not cast us into the outer darkness. He is friendly. He is yes, very much non-threatening. He certainly fits our human categories rather neatly, whatever categories we may have. And this applies somewhat to, say, ideology. On the right, more or less, God may be seen as an advocate of American nationalism. On the left, God may be seen as an advocate of social justice and is totally cool with your choices in life. And those are certainly oversimplifications, but I think there's some basis in reality for them. And that even goes beyond the sort of political categories I've mentioned. Any kind of ecclesiology, any kind of theology, any kind of system of thought about the relationship between God and man, well, all of those things have some human influence. And so as such, they are prone to some error, and thus they cannot save. And so that is where the whole idea of the otherness of God comes into play. And I'll share with you some of what Bart wrote on some of these verses. What does he say? For example, the first verse, the first part of the first verse is, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. And as Bart says, those who do not know the unknown God have neither occasion nor possibility of lifting themselves up. So it is also with those who know him, for they too are men. They too belong to the world of time. There is no human righteousness by which men can escape the wrath of God. There is no magnificent temporality of this world which can justify men before God. There is no arrangement of affairs or deportment of behavior, no disposition of mind or depth of feeling, no intuition or understanding, which is by its own virtue pleasing to God. Men are men, and they belong to the world of men. That which is born of a flesh is flesh. 
Every concrete and tangible thing belongs within the order of time. Everything which emerges in men and which owes its form and expansion to them is always and everywhere and as such ungodly and unclean. And the kingdom of men is without exception never the kingdom of God. And so that serves, well, in the time of Paul, that would serve as a very good corrective to the idea that Jews had that because of their, because they were given the law and because of the customs they practiced, they are therefore righteous before God. And without an encounter with God in the human heart and without um, that great kind of crisis that we come to, where we realize we are sinners without hope and we come to God and ask for his mercy, well, that cannot save us. So just as it was true for the Jews of the time, so it's true also for people who belong to a specific church. Belonging to a specific church and doing the rituals and customs of the church cannot save us because even the church is also in the world. The church is subject to time. The church is in the world of men. And so even following the laws of the church cannot save. That's kind of the radical message that Bart, um, that Bart offers. Now, also in verse 1, Paul writes, For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. And so again, you may belong again to a certain church, you adhere to certain teachings. You behave in a certain way. And you, whoever you is, I don't mean you sitting here necessarily, but any you anywhere, you may feel that you have the right to judge others. But in so doing so, you condemn yourself because all of those things that we just mentioned cannot possibly save. And so if we are Presbyterians and we judge Baptists or Baptists judge Presbyterians or... One branch of Christianity judges another branch, or in fact, even judges those who are not Christian. We are indeed piling up condemnation for ourselves, just as it was for the Jews of the time. They thought they had the answers, they thought they had the righteousness of God, but they didn't, and neither do we. We can never possess it. It's not something that belongs to us, naturally. It is something that is graciously given to us, yes, but it is not something that we can go out and earn and have, no matter what we do, no matter what we believe. And again, a radical message. Although I happen to think it is the true one. And here it is again. Uh, you, the judge, practice the very same things. In other words, the very same things that you condemn other people for. And again, Bart says, what is true for the generality of men is true also of the men of God. As men, they do not differ from other men. There is no fragment or speak or epic of history which can be pronounced divine. The whole history of the church and of all religion takes place in this world. And so what is called the history of our salvation is not an event in the midst of other events, but is nothing less than the crisis of all history. There are no saints in the midst of a company of sinners. For where men have claimed to be saints, they are thereby marked as not saints. 
Their criticism and invective and indictment of the world inevitably place them, unless they be themselves its object, within the course of this world and betray that they are of it. And this is as true of Paul, the prophet and apostle of the kingdom of God, and of Jeremiah, as it is of Luther, Kierkegaard, and Blumhardt. It applies to St. Francis, and it applies to Tolstoy. Everything human swims with the stream, either with vehement protest or with easy accommodation, even when it appears to hover above it or to engage in conflict with it. The power of righteousness applies only to God and has only God. It comes only from God. Excuse me. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 3. Which that well, verse two just confirms what we've been saying. We know that the right, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So, in other words, people who commit sins, and everybody commits sins. Again, it doesn't matter what particular branch of the church you belong to, or even if you belong to the church at all, you commit sins, and so the righteousness and the judgment of God fall upon you. But then we look at verse three. Do you suppose, O oh man? You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. And so, from Bart again, the reckoning of the righteousness of men is false. It contains there, moreover, a false entry. Thou hast credited to thine own account that which belongs to God. What God has given thee, thou hast accounted a human possibility and achievement. What has been bestowed upon thee in eternity, thou hast counted as possessing temporal validity. Thou dost overlook of what slight importance is the eminence upon which thou art standing. Thou failest to perceive that even now a question is being asked of thee to which thou canst give no answer. Thou dost not understand that the course of history does not in itself constitute the judgment upon history. And similarly in this verse, I'm sorry, in verse 4, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lend you, to lead you to repentance? And that simply means that when we reflect upon the goodness and kindness of God, there is a purpose for that. It is to lead us to that crisis of our lives, of our existence, that leads us to repentance. That is the greatest kindness of God, that we would be indicted by our conscience under the law to come to him in repentance. And this has much more to do with, well, this is, has everything to do with God's initiative and almost nothing to do with our religious experience. And I know that sounds a bit shocking. Why wouldn't our religious experience be important? But again, something that Bart offers to us, you can have great religious experiences, you can be a great person, but you may not perceive and apprehend the reality of God. Um, You know, what then is all this? Is it mysticism or intuition or ecstasy or a miraculous occurrence granted to peculiarly gifted men? or to men who have been especially guided? Can it be described as an experience of certain pure souls, or as a discovery of the intelligence, as an achievement of will, or as a response to peculiarly intense prayer, 
No, assuredly not. There have been purer souls and wiser heads. There have been men of greater energy of life and of greater spiritual perception. But God has not spoken to them. There are mystics and ecstatics who have never seen clearly. The encounter of grace depends upon no human possession for achievement. Even all an awakening is of no value and has no independent validity in the presence of God. When God speaks and is recognized, we are unable to speak of human existence or possessions or enjoyment. He who has been chosen by God cannot say that he has chosen God. And so we see that even those people that we look up to as being perhaps spiritual leaders or people with especially wise minds and good hearts, again, none of that ultimately matters aside from the gift of God. And that is quite an extraordinary radical teaching because, you know, we may think to ourselves, well, all right, things like greed and materialism and all of that, you know, those can't save us, those things of the world. But here, Karl Barth is saying that even things that we consider good cannot save us. Even things that seem to be spiritually powerful cannot save us, aside from the working of God. You can have wonderful mystic experiences and ecstatic experiences, but that really matters nothing, absent the Spirit of God. And there could be somebody who just seems to be kind of a bump on a log and doesn't have any special spiritual insight or whatever, but that person may be chosen by God. And the person who seems to be so spiritually advanced is not chosen by God. And in any case, we're warned, and this is good reform teaching, that if we are chosen by God, we cannot say that we have chosen God. God chooses us. We do not choose God. From our human standpoint, it may seem that we do. It feels like we do. But in reality, we don't. It is all God's initiative. It is always God's action. We are at best the Recipients of that amazing grace. And so, those few verses that Bart addresses, I found very, very meaningful in the way that he addressed them. God is beyond all human sentiments and achievements. That is what Bart is getting at. God is sometimes incomprehensibly other, God is not tameable. God is not somebody that we can domesticate. God is not uh, just a friend of ours. And I found that helpful when I was doing a little bit of other reading. Um, Something that has interested me and troubled me for many years, since I started seminary, um, is how God is portrayed in the Old Testament especially. Now, I've learned over time with more study and discernment that God is really not radically different in the two Testaments, but certainly he seems to be. We have the image of God in the Old Testament as being especially harsh and judgmental. And we think of some horrible events like the um, command to drive out the Canaanites, to destroy the Canaanites, all of them, men, women, and children. And of course, there are various ways that you can interpret that. I'm reading a wonderful book called Is God a Moral Monster?, very provocative title, of course, by Paul Copen. 
And he is dealing with that. Um, he suggests that the language of genocide is real, but it was also a typical exaggeration of the time. In other words, right after we have the command of genocide, destroying all the Canaanites, God then gives commands about how to deal with the Canaanites in your midst. And so what happened? How is it that there was a command of genocide and then God says, oh, but the ones who are still around, you know, <laughs> this is how you have to deal with them. Uh, so it's a, you know, it, it's a very interesting conversation, but that's a little bit outside of the scope of the message tonight. But when we think about those things, we're, and we think about the God who has commanded the genocide of the Canaanites, we think of the God um, who allows his devoted servant Job to be so afflicted by the devil, the God of the whirlwind, the God who says, you know, you were not there at the beginning of creation. How should we react? And I think that there we really have the opportunity to understand and appreciate the otherness of God. God is not domesticated. God is not tame. God just is, and we are called to accept him and all of his strangeness and otherness, which is especially well brought out in some of these parts of the Old Testament. If we will not have faith in God or we will not follow Jesus Christ, and Christ was there in the Old Testament too, implicitly, if we will not accept or follow God because of the things we cannot understand, what are we doing? We are making God captive to our own limited imaginations, our own ideas of what is right and wrong. But isn't that just what Karl Barth is warning against? Putting our own wisdom and our own ideas first and refusing to accept God as he truly is however paradoxical, however strange, however off-putting at times. And he puts it, as I say, Bart puts it in a little bit of a different way than Paul does, but I think Paul was getting at that point too because returning to that time and that context, he is speaking to the Jews here and he says, because of your, this is verse 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And so, basically, Paul is saying a lot of what Jesus said. I mean, he says, it doesn't matter how long your phylacteries are. It doesn't matter how well you um, do the rituals in the temple. Those things do not matter. I should add, though, the caveat. They, sh- they do not matter absent a true change of the heart. Absent the presence of God in your life. The rituals and the teachings cannot save. Only God can save. Now, it says in verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor in immortality, he will give eternal life. And so, what is the example of Jesus? The example of Jesus is patience and well-doing. The example of his followers is to be Patience in well-doing and not self-seeking and not self-glorification. The only way to glory and honor and immortality, paradoxically, is to let go of those things. To act as if they are not your reward. I mean, they will be, but you must not act as if you are striving for those things, because only God can give them. It doesn't matter if you strive for them, you can't get them, you can only receive them. And those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. That's verse 8. 
And again, that is just as true for the Jew and the Greek. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. Now it's interesting that Paul writes that first because then he says, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. And 11, for God knows, shows no partiality. Now, Paul does it in that order for a very important reason. He is speaking to his fellow Jews who have convinced themselves that God will show partiality to them because of the distinctives of their faith, because of the rituals, because of the teachings, and so on and so forth. And what Paul is saying is, well, if you are going to be first in God's grace and mercy... You have to be aware that you're going to be first in God's judgment. That you are going to be first in receiving the wrath of God. In other words, being first in line isn't always the best thing. Jesus said, to whom much is given, much is expected. And certainly to those who have been given the law, who have been especially blessed by God in that way, much is expected of them too. It is not just an automatic thing that being born a certain way and being circumcised into the faith is going to save you. No, there has to be that individual relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And again, that individual relationship comes only from the action, the gracious action of God, and not from any of our attainments. Verse 12 says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so what Paul is saying here, I think, is that if you cannot be saved by the law if you don't have the law, obviously. And I think probably his Jewish listeners would be nodding at that point. But even if you have the law, if you are under the law, that cannot save you by itself either. The law, well, the law is many things. The law is the perfect truth of God, but the law in itself cannot give salvation, which is an astonishing thing. Very simply, no human being can perfectly fulfill the law. That is the problem. And so, if you belong, well, at the time of Paul, we would be saying if you belong to a synagogue, if you went to the temple, if you did all those things that good Jews did, if you were under the law and aware of it, that could not save you. It certainly applies to us today, at the risk of repeating myself. If you belong to a church, if you do what the church says, if you do what is required, those things cannot save you either. And never, ever, ever look at those who do not do those things and judge them, because you also are being judged. And again, in that, in that same vein, Paul says in verse 13, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. And then he says, even more provocatively, I think, for Jews hearing this, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. And so Paul's going even further. He's not only saying that knowing the law will not save you, but he even says, even if you don't know the law as it is set out in the rituals and the teachings of Judaism, even if you don't know those things, you actually can be saved. God can and will save you 
the law is written on your heart. And that is such an important thing for the law to be written on our heart. It means that we have that amazing relationship with God through Jesus Christ that comes from God's own initiative. It is such a greater thing than trying in our miserable human way to fulfill the requirements of the law that we just cannot really compare them. But Paul is showing again how things have changed with the coming of Jesus Christ. And so they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And again, it all comes down to accepting that we cannot save ourselves. It comes to accepting that only through the gracious act of God, through Jesus Christ, can anyone be saved. It doesn't matter how intelligent we are. It doesn't matter what our station in life is. It doesn't matter what church we belong to officially. None of those things ultimately matters. What matters is that God has, for whatever incomprehensible reason, chosen you to be one of his people. We don't know why God would choose one and not the other. Again, that goes beyond any human notions of of comprehension. But nonetheless, we are called upon to accept the gracious choice of God and the wonderful, perfect choice of God, even if we cannot indeed understand it. We're not always called upon to understand everything, but we are called upon to accept the initiative of God. And so I offer all of that to you tonight in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.